welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, Eric Newman, LARB's gender and sexuality editor. Hi, Eric. Hi, Medea. And today we have a conversation with Alex Ross, the noted New Yorker music critic and author most recently of Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. Eric, what's your relationship to Wagner? So my... Is it personal or political? Complicated, you know, of course, is in the ways that we get into in our interview with Alex. But I actually was first kind of turned on to, or I guess you could say reminded of Wagner when I was in a gay bar in the Castro. And one of the guys that I had met told me that I absolutely had to smoke a joint and listen to... Wagner's uh, Resurrection. And it is a beautiful and very moving piece of music. I think even sober, (laughs) I can report. Um, And for a while, that replaced as kind of my background writing music, what had for a long time been and and now still is my go-to for that, which is uh, Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. Uh, which is just excellent. And and anybody that's listening should definitely listen to that. It's it's a beautiful, incredible, very romantic work. Um, but so, yeah, so that was my experience of, of Wagner. And I think, you know, again, like we talk about in the interview, I had been put off by the very well-known anti-Semitism of Wagner and also, of course, by the fact that he was Hitler's favorite composer. So not not necessarily the kind of blurbs that one is like, oh, must listen to that. But, you know, also like everybody else, I grew up hearing Wagner in, in snatches from, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons and stuff like that. Right, 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 right. Yeah, well, that's actually a pretty like sexy Wagner story. That's not what I was expecting. So I'm glad we got that. <laughs> Um, I think the thing that I really sort of learned from this book and something I hadn't realized on my own, though you're totally right, I've heard Wagner's music all my life Mm -hmm. in different cartoons and movies and and all that, but really just how influential he was outside of the kind of influence that I was aware of. Yes. his, His influence within the Nazi party. So it was really interesting learning just how widespread his music has become without really even my even noticing, I think. So it was a revelatory interview in that sense. All right. Well, let's get to it, shall we? Let's get to it. I'm going to grab a joint. (laughs) All right. I'll put on the resurrection. (laughs) Okay. We're joined by Alex Ross today. Alex Ross is an award-winning writer and music critic. He has served as the music critic at The New Yorker since 1996. He writes about classical music covering the field from the Metropolitan Opera to the contemporary avant-garde, and has also contributed essays on literature, history, the visual arts, film, and ecology. His first book, The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century, A Cultural History of Music Since 1900, won a National Book Critics Circle Award and the Guardian First Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His latest book is called Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, an account of Richard Wagner's vast cultural impact. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me in. 
So Alex, to get started, I feel that Wagner is, or certainly was for me, especially my younger years, a kind of composer whose music you'll be highly familiar with. Most listeners will be highly familiar with, even if they have no idea who the composer is. So I'm wondering if you can just talk to our listeners a little bit about who Richard Wagner was in the big picture sense. Well, it's true that everyone does know some Wagner, whether they realize it or not. If you've been to a wedding, you've heard the wedding march from Lohengrin. You've heard the Ride of the Valkyries in hundreds of different Hollywood movies and TV shows, Apocalypse Now and Bugs Bunny and so on. So the music is highly recognizable. What people tend not to know as well is the dramatic context in which all these famous snippets of music occur. And that's a much more complicated proposition. But Wagner was essentially a major figure of the German Romantic era. He came in the wake of Beethoven and was the one who sort of unleashed the power of a kind of Beethoven orchestra and Beethoven-like intensity in the opera field. But he was much more than a composer. He was a dramatist. He wrote the texts for all his operas. He was also a theorist and a polemicist, a theatrical director, an architect, essentially, of theatrical spaces. He was an enormously energetic, a sort of a volcano of a human being. A number of people, including Nietzsche and Baudelaire, compared him to a volcano, this upwelling of energy, which had such a vast influence on the culture of his time and the culture and politics of the following eras, for better or for worse. So the book is called Wagnerism. And one of the things that struck me about it, which is not what I was expecting, actually, and perhaps this is because of my lack of familiarity with Wagner and his work, but that much of your book is actually dedicated to precisely this influence that he had on people outside of music and on other mediums, on other arts, philosophy, etc. And what is that? What is Wagnerism? What is this influence that he had? Yeah, what well, is very hard to define because it just sort of depends yeah. on who is doing the Wagnerizing, in a sense. Who is, <laughs> yeah. who is kind of the, the recipient of this influence. And so it just varies so widely. And you know, many people are familiar with Wagner's nefarious influence on the political right and the fact that Hitler loved his music. But in fact, he had many, many devotees on the political left and really for a long time was associated principally with the left because he was a revolutionary in the years 1848-49. And, you know, in every geographical area and sort of so many different movements in art, especially right around the turn of the last century. And so it is difficult to pin down what was this. And really, even more interesting is the question, why did it happen in particular to this one figure? I think it has a lot to do with the atmosphere of the late 19th century, which was kind of the heyday of the religion of art. There was this idea that art could save us where political revolution might have failed or religion itself might have failed. And so people were looking for an artistic savior and Wagner very willingly offered himself up to play that gigantic role. But there was something about the way this work had an effect on people. It was, on the one hand, it was like very viscerally powerful. Just the sounds of the Wagner orchestra and the voices kind of pinned people up against the wall. And sort of there was all this talk of Wagner as a spell, Wagner acting on people almost as a narcotic. But it was actually quite vague. You know, what was the message being transmitted? And Wagner was working with myth with these sort of ancient legends and sagas that he was modernizing and 
enriching, but he was also drawing on that, these stories that have just gone through every civilization and every tradition of the, you know, the young hero discovering his abilities and, you know, the magic sword and the magic ring and the cursed wanderer, the holy grail. And he was brilliant at manipulating these myths. But the thing about myth is it just can be endlessly reinvented and it can just serve as an allegory in every possible situation sort of going through human history. People always see themselves in myth. And I think that ultimately is why Wagner had such an effect because he sort of unleashed all of the resources, massive resources of the 19th century theater and his massive orchestra in the service of myth. And the impact that he had can be compared to how Hollywood blockbusters with these sort of mythic and legendary themes have become modern myths, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and so on. And so it's a powerful and also a dangerous tool to work with. Obviously, there's the invocation of Wagner as kind of the fascist's composer. And I'm wondering a little bit, or if you can kind of lay out for the audience, there are the kind of, I guess we would call like the troubling fan cultures around Wagner. But the composer himself held like incredibly racist, sexist, anti-Semitic views. So can you talk about Wagner in that way as, you know, whether he's, those are his firm commitments or he's a product of his time? Well, the one kind of unavoidable, awful fact about Wagner is that he was a really ferocious anti-Semite and was extremely vocal about it. This is not the case of an artist who regrettably made some anti-Semitic remarks or was known to have said things in private. He wrote on the subject and broadcast his views. And those views had impact because of the nature of his fame. And so I think he helped to popularize a particular kind of anti-Semitism that was trending away from these older forms where there was kind of this economic critique and Jews were being used as a metaphor for economic problems or the much older religious Christian bias against Jews. Wagner was pointing toward this racialized, biological, pseudoscientific kind of anti-Semitism. This is really what the word anti-Semitism means in the strict sense. It is this kind of genetic differentiation of Jews or any other racial group. And so that was very dangerous. There were complexities and kind of contradictions to Wagner's racial views. It was pretty much confined to Jews and sort of other racial groups he didn't have much to say about. And once he set the anti-Semitism aside, his politics actually are quite far away from what we consider to be fascism or totalitarianism, because he was actually something of an anarchist a lot of the time or had sort of socialist tendencies, and he was opposed to the militarized state, actually took a strong dislike to the German empire at the end of his life. So it's not an absolutely straight line. And any political appropriation, whether on the right or on the left, sort of has to clean up and omit part of this very complicated picture in order to make Wagner politically useful. But that certainly the Nazis and Hitler succeeded in doing, and it's an image that has stuck. I mean, the kind of one thing that anyone knows these days about Wagner is that he was Hitler's favorite composer. So that is now the dominant image of him. And yet, in a couple of different chapters, you kind of talk, and some of them I was totally unaware of, about Black thinkers, Jewish thinkers, queer thinkers, who all really take up 
obviously the larger point of the book is that the Wagnerism is in the eye of the beholder, the listener, I guess, right? However they put to use Wagner's work. But I was particularly struck by your recounting of Theodore Herzl's, one of the founders of the State of Israel, and W.B. Du Bois's kind of attachment to Wagner and to his writing, even and especially maybe in the case of Herzl, being something that seems not to quite match a figure whose politics and views in some ways seem diametrically opposed to those of these thinkers. So can you talk a little bit about how queer or Black and Jewish thinkers take up Wagner's work? Right. Well, in the case of gay Wagnerism or queer Wagnerism, there's actually much less of a contradiction. But we right, can get you into do that. say that he has an open if befuddled kind of yeah, view of homosexuality. We can get into that a little later. But in terms yeah. of Wagner's racial views, yes, the fact is that Theodor Herzl, the progenitor, central progenitor of the idea of the Zionist state, not only loved Wagner's music, but was actually listening mm-hmm. to Tannhäuser at the Paris Opera as he was writing this famous book, The Jewish State. And he specifically said afterward that the opera was inspiring to him. And he would go to see it each time it was performed at the Paris Opera every few days. And it was only on the days when there was no opera being performed that he lacked inspiration for his project. You know, so that's a remarkable thing to say. Mm -hmm. And when we look back on this, we have to somehow sort of not see what was coming. From the post-Holocaust era, it looks utterly bizarre and quite unsettling that this foundational, enormously influential Jewish thinker was attached to Wagner. There seems something kind of strange or perverse about it. But for someone of that era, who was certainly aware of Wagner's anti-Semitism, but you know, did not see this catastrophe uh, approaching, and in fact, at this period, Herzl might have thought that anti-Semitism was worse in France than it was in Germany in the period of the Dreyfus Affair, it seems less strange. And there were many, many Jewish Wagnerians. And some of them fall into the category of they were trying to adapt and assimilate themselves into, especially into a kind of conservative political arena. And so there's an element of self-concealment, self-denial going on, even self-hatred. But in many other cases, such as Herzl, it was simply that I love this music, and despite the views of the composer, I am moved by it, I'm inspired by it, and in fact, I can use it to forward, to further my own views, even if they seem diametrically opposed to you know that of the composer himself. And there was sort of just less of a dissonance, I think, that the people felt. There was kind of a, a freedom to take this work and use it sort of however you want it and sort of less of a sense that the work itself was dictating to you how it should be listened to. And so that's also the case with Du Bois. And there's less of a contradiction here because Wagner was not known for his anti-Black racist views. And in fact, there were scattered signs that he had some sympathy for African-Americans. He makes some sympathetic remarks that are recorded in Cosima Wagner's, his wife's diaries. And just a few other kind of scattered remarks over the years that someone like Du Bois would not have seen Wagner as the enemy, as a sort of a figure actively opposing the specific cause of African-Americans. So Du Bois, who adored Wagner's music throughout his life and went so far as to go to the Bayreuth Festival, the Wagner Festival in 1936, which is a strange year to make such a trip, what he took from Wagner was that this could be a model for how African-Americans 
can develop great new works of art from their own traditions and sort of use myth and legend as Wagner had used the Nordic and Teutonic sagas. And so Wagner becomes an active model. And he wasn't the only one. Alan Locke was very fond of Wagner. Langston yes. Hughes yeah. loved Tristan and Isolde. Shirley Graham was a composer who had a particular attachment to Wagner. And of course, she went on to marry Du Bois and become an eminent figure in the civil rights movement herself. And so this was, you know, not a hugely widespread, but a kind of noticeable phenomenon, Ralph Ellison too. And so Black intellectuals and writers, especially of the late 19th, sort of going into the early mid 20th century, felt free to, to almost make Wagner an ally. And I think it's only more recently that we've tended to view such alliances as more dubious or somehow deeply surprising. In some way, yeah, it's interesting because it speaks to the power of, you know, what you call the dangerous tool of mythmaking, because it is precisely so, so malleable and attractive that any sort of construction of myth can create a community and can also other another community. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the fundamental problem, of course, with nationalism itself, but you sort of maybe sort of in an even deeper, more invasive way, these cultural myths, which create these dualities of people of one group are invested with good and those of another are invested with evil. And especially when we start creating heroes and superheroes who embody these forces and take the fight against the throngs of evil in the world. It's a kind of mentality that leads toward duality and sort of toward political extremes. And so I think we can take the lessons looking at our own culture and see how whatever the intention was behind a sort of particular application of these mythic ideas, it can just very easily be appropriated and turned in another direction. You know, take the red pill, blue pill thing from The Matrix, you know, and I bring up The Matrix in my book because there's a kind of Parsifal subtext to The Matrix and the character of Neo is Parsifalian figure and Morpheus is like the wise old Gurnemans in the opera guiding him. But, you know, that very powerful almost mythic scenario of the red pill and the blue pill. I mean, it sort of transcended the specific sort of cinematic context and it becomes such a reference point. And of course, that's been, you know, appropriated by the alt-right as a metaphor for their own sense of initiation into the secret knowledge of the way things really work. And of course, this is something that the creators of The Matrix would presumably be horrified by. But this is what happens when you create a work that has such not only broad impact, but plays with these mythic forms, which just can get under our skin culturally so deeply. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Alex Ross, author of Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Tom Zollner on the line with us today. Tom is the politics editor at the LA Review of Books, and he has a new book out. It's called The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. And Tom is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Tom, what book are you going to recommend? This book um, has been a lodestar of mine for years. It was close to almost a direct inspiration for The National Road. It's called Inside USA. It was written in 
published rather in 1947 by uh, a Chicago journalist named John Gunther, who later made a franchise out of this idea of creating encyclopedic journalism between two covers that assesses both regionally and nationally the character of an entire continent. You know, in this case, he didn't cover Canada and Mexico, but he had previously written uh, Inside Europe. Uh, There's another book called Inside Asia. Uh, There's Inside Mm -hmm. Africa. And these books were of certainly a a mid-20th century perspective, but it's remarkable to me how well they hold up uh, in terms of nailing a particular truth. What is his methodology for covering such enormous, diverse areas of, of land and people? Gunther had two questions, um, which he incessantly asked anyone he would uh, come across in a particular locality. Uh, number one, who runs this place? In other words, tell me about the local power structure. Um, tell me what economic uh, and political influences shape uh, what's here. And that yields some interesting answers. I mean, obviously, everyone's got a perspective on who really holds the power in any given city or any given neighborhood. The second question is, tell me what makes this place distinct. Why are you different from what surrounds you? And that also can yield some interesting answers. I've asked those two questions myself, actually, and with varying levels of success. Um, Sometimes you really get an insight into kind of uh, hidden currents in a community. Sometimes people will point to things in their community that, you know, you never would have heard about, uh, except, you know, they think they're important and therefore they should be paid attention to. And how did you hear about this book? How did you discover it? I I found it on the shelf of um, my great-grandfather's house in uh, a small town in Kansas. Good discovery story. Okay, Tom, will you tell us the name of the book again, the title of the book again, and the yes. author? Yes, um, I, I tell uh, any interested party about this book because I think it's probably the best book ever written about the United States. It's called Inside USA. The author is John Gunther, published by Harper, as it was then called, Harper and Row. Thank you so much, Tom. That sounds fascinating. We've been joined by Tom Solner. His new book is called the National Road Dispatches from a Changing America, and he's the LARB Politics Editor. Thank you, Tom. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Alex Ross, author of Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. We've discussed Du Bois and a number of the other people who are influenced by Wagner, but you actually, you trace his influence, as you said, to the contemporary day, to now, you know, as you point out, is the matrix. And so one of the most famous sort of ways in which we can see Wagner's influence is in the movies. Can you talk about why that is? How did, how does Wagner... I mean, I think we've kind of been talking around this a little bit, um, but how does Wagner and his work lend himself to film? Yeah, well, first of all, the the Wagner kind of musical system proved incredibly useful the moment people started using music uh, in the movies. So, you know, even in the silent era, people were looking to Wagner as a guide for sort of how do you introduce characters, how do you label characters, and the, and the Wagner so-called leitmotif 
system was was held up almost as a manual, sort of a go-to manual for for how you sort of organize music and and use it to help tell the story of the film. Um, and then Wagner's own music was very often used in movies, again, beginning in the silent era. So if there were horses galloping across the screen, the movie house pianist could play the, the Ride of the Valkyries. And, mm. and, um, and then as the movies went on, you also saw situations in which, you know, people are listening to Wagner's music as, as a sort of a, in a, a dramatic situation. Wagner himself was was portrayed in a number of uh, movies, uh, often uh, very, very poor <laughs> uh, portrayals um, of this very complicated character. Um, and then I think maybe most importantly, there's this sense that you know, on this mythic level, that the sort of Wagner's uh, stories of, you know, the, the the cursed wanderer and you know the, the the young hero discovering his ability and 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 all of these brilliant modernized Wagner myths could you know, either become a direct model for you know movie scenario or they're kind of working more in the background and maybe there's sort of a more indirect uh, influence at work. You know, in the case of the Lord of the Rings, the influence was direct. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien um, knew Wagner quite well, and, and the Wagner elements in that story are unmistakable and are translated mm. directly into the, the movies. In the case of Star Wars, I think it is more oblique, and it's more that you're sort of seeing the recurrence of these motifs, you know, this kind of magic sword becoming the lightsaber. And again, the sort of the, the young uh, hero uh, undergoing his maturation and initiation. And, and you know, they, they, they remind you of Wagner, whether or not, you know, George Lucas actually knew the Wagner operas, which I don't think, uh, I don't think he did. Uh, of course, the, the music also reminds you of Wagner because uh, John Williams knows Sort of all of musical history uh, extremely well, and you know can can use the the Wagner example when it suits his purposes. Um, and you have a very sophisticated uh, leitmotif system uh, at work all through the the Star Wars films. And so this is this is probably the sort of the most common way that we're sort of experiencing Wagner in movies uh, these days. Um, you know, in the chapter in my book on Wagner in Hollywood, uh, I focus especially on these these kind of charged moments where Wagner's music is, is being used on the soundtrack, you know, often with the, with the kind of whole history of Wagner reception uh, mm. now in mind, uh, less true in the sort of early 20th century, but by the time you get to Apocalypse Now, this whole dark history with Wagner is very much present and is part of the, you know, the, the ironic agenda in that remarkable scene of the helicopter assault on a Vietnamese village uh, where there's a, a racist edge to the whole operation and Robert Duvall's character is, is making these racist remarks. Um, and so it's sort of this, this, this mentality of, you know, killing the savages, uh, but this is now American soldiers. It's kind of the American military machine, which is being powered by, you know, this music that, that was so often associated with German military aggression. And that's obviously a very intentional kind of switching of roles where the where the, where the Americans become the, the, the chief aggressors and oppressors in place of the Germans, who were the you know the the bad guys, the Nazi villains, who are you know listening to Wagner, had become a, a commonplace in, in um, Hollywood movies long before. So so that's you know that's sort of Wagner with with a, a very particular uh, twist. 
that obviously has resonated hugely because that became one of the most famous <laughs> uh, movie scenes in, in, in all of history. You know, one thing that I, I, obviously this book is a huge labor of love for you. I mean, I think that someone cannot sit with Wagner in the depth of research that you've done, which I think any reader would be incredibly impressed with, without like being firmly committed yourself to um, this figure in his music. So I wanted to ask you kind of how you first got turned on to Wagner and kind of how you approach him now you know, knowing everything that you know in in the incredible learning that I'm sure was the process of writing this book. Yeah, uh, well, it's been a fascinating experience. You know, I I had I sort of had a, a kind of mixed and ambivalent relationship with Wagner's music for a long time. Initially, I actually didn't like it at all. I remember when I was a kid, I'd grown up with classical music, and when I first tried to listen to to Wagner, it seemed very strange and kind of shapeless and amorphous and made me feel slightly ill. <laughs> um, and then um, in college, I was very immersed in college and sort of late 19th, early 20th century uh, European history and literature, um, mm. including a lot of the territory that I write about in this book. I, I wrote my senior thesis about Joyce with a lot of reference to the kind of uh, uh, racial uh, Philosophy and 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 sort of theorizing of the of uh, of the fin de siècle uh, period um, figures like uh, the the ominous philosopher uh, Otto Weininger and various others who are referenced in, in Ulysses. So so this was um, uh, this was a period that I that I, I got to know very well. And Wagner was just always looming there, you know, as this as this rather shadowy uh, figure. And I was very aware of his anti-Semitism and uh, the way in which he pointed toward Nazism. Um, and so I, you know, I saw Wagner chiefly as, as a problem, you know, mm -hmm. as a deeply problematic figure. And it wasn't until somewhat later that I started really seriously listening to the operas themselves and understanding them as purely theatrical experiences. Um, and again, it's this problem of sort of hearing Wagner in bits and pieces uh, as opposed to sitting through uh, one of you know the the entire ring cycle, uh, one opera after another, which is of course a, a huge uh, commitment of time. But <laughs> but at the end of that, I think so many people realize, oh my God, Wagner was actually this extraordinary psychologist, um, and you know the the all the sort of political background, everything drops away, and you realize that the Ring Cycle is this grand nineteenth-century bourgeois novel, kind of in the clothing of a mythic story, and Wotan is a patriarch of a family in decline, and he is. You know, grasping after new technologies, uh, the ring, and sort of trying to forge new uh, alliances in, in order to perpetuate his power, and he ends up ensuring uh, his own uh, destruction. And and uh, and the, the finely etched uh, portrait of you know that mentality and his wife Fricka and their relationship and and uh, uh, Brunhilde, the, the disobedient uh, daughter, and the, and the exchanges between them. I mean, it's it's incredibly rich. Theatrical material, and so I, I started, you know, appreciating that aspect of Wagner uh, more and more, but without forgetting all the rest, you know. So it's it's a it's a very complicated picture that I see now, um, and I've I've had my own sort of deeply personal responses um, to the work, just at, at particular moments of my life when it just kind of reached out and, and grabbed me in an extraordinary way, and I try to kind of hold all this 
together. Um, and sort of the, the whole complexity of this, the, the, the historical fact of Wagner and, and the, the sort of personal experience of the music. And you, I don't think you have to choose between uh, these different uh, experiences. And, and, you know, this, this just, this is how we, we cope with the, the work of the past, which has such uh, baggage attached to it. And, and, you know, we're, we're aware, we're alert to, you know, how uh, the work reflects the, the intentions of, the, of its creator and, and, the, and the context. Um, but at the same time, you know, we allow ourselves to, to reshape it and, and reinvent it. And that's ultimately what I found so fascinating in this book. I mean, I go into my own personal experience at the very end, mm-hmm. but all the way through, I've been watching how Wagner is radically reshaped by, by those who fall under the spell of his music, but sort of end up, you know, changing it completely, changing the meaning completely. And yeah, it's just kind of a, a, a particularly charged and, and, and you know, complex uh, case of how art acts in the world and, and how it changes uh, as, it, as it moves through time. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, especially hearing you articulate it that way, it seems like such a, a great nuanced rejoinder to what oftentimes appears to be the kind of black and white way that we talk about, you know, this, what is fundamentally this problem, right? Is this question about like, can we separate the artist as a person from the work as an aesthetic object or the aesthetic object and the artist from the ways that they've been taken up? And what I, what I also hear you saying and what I I read throughout the book is that you actually have to sit with that kind of complexity which is something that requires you to, especially in the ways that you walk through Wagner's biography and his thinking, you have to sit with the incoherence, right? right. With the like how life affirming, you know, and like uplifting uh, Wagner's music can be and can feel in a very visceral way without, you know, but you also have to hold that next to the much more troubling, you know, and no less real parts of that history. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, no one has to sit with Wagner. I mean, and, and I respect people. There is still I, agency and choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally respect people who just won't have anything to do with this composer. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to argue, you know, them into a sort of different point of view and, and it's not kind of attempting to win people over to Wagner uh, at all. You know, it's a, it's a report on an event that happened in, in cultural history. And, and you know, this sort of Wagnerism took place. And I'm trying to sort through um, the, the nature of it. But yeah, I mean, of course, you think about, you know, how, you know, how the work should be understood now and just how we as listeners now um, can, can come to terms with this history. And, I guess what I resist in the case of Wagner is singling him out as someone so nefarious and so malignant um, that he just belongs in a completely different category, mm. you know. And um, you know, the fact is that so many of the the problems that we see kind of spectacularly uh, uh, represented uh, in Wagner are, are present everywhere, you know, in, in the work of the past and, and in the work of our own time and racism and, and misogyny and, you know, nationalism and, and chauvinism. Uh, they are omnipresent. Um, and so, 
you know, I sort of resist this this kind of few bad apples mentality where you sort of get rid of Wagner and you you sort of get rid of a few other people and then everything is fine. And you know, no, you know these these are these are systemic uh, issues, and we're never going to be able to, you know, cleanse and 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 reorder the 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 sort of repertory, the the, the canons uh, of of the past. Um, and the amazing thing about Wagner is actually how, you know, in our own time. Uh, you know, people's relationship with the work has managed to be so fraught and so ambivalent and so contested. And, you know, you get stagings of his work in in, in Germany, which which seem to be kind of, uh, uh, you know, attacking him head on and sort of, you know, putting all this dark history uh, on stage uh, and sort of, you know, challenging uh, the sort of fundamental sort of uh, uh, ideas of the work um, in a very direct way, and yet it's still being played, and it's sort of it's still having um, its old, uh, you know, emotional effect. And and so, the the case of Wagner and this and this sort of furious kind of controversy over uh, Wagner, which goes way way back. I mean, there's all the way back in the 1850s. People were asking, "Is this man too awful, you know, for us to listen to his music?" <laughs> um, and you know, so this 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 contestation has gone on and on, but without ever sort of ever feeling the need to just shove the work entirely to the side. And I think that's a kind of a, a rich, you know, example of how we can engage with, with problematic work and actually learn from it without just simply, you know, looking away from it and, and sort of wishing that it, that it weren't there. I mean, that all sounds right to me, but I, I think that there is something to be said in terms of um, being intellectually capable of holding these things at the same time and understanding these the complexities of a particular person and, and mm-hmm. his work and art um, while also having an affective response to the work, right? Where, or to his his political views simultaneously, right? Where the affective response is you know, this isn't for me. Or uh, like, he didn't write this for me as a Jewish woman. He, he Mm. didn't do this for, he did. I'm, I'm completely excluded from, from who this was meant for in a way, even though, even though obviously people have claimed it for their own myth-making purposes. I mean, one of the things that I wonder is, well, how do you, how do you mitigate the effective, affective response? And for you, did you have one in terms of, you know, sitting with this for so long and engaging with it. I mean, because effectively it seems much more complicated in a way than intellectually. I think intellectually uh, it's it's quite easy to make a case for this work and for its importance and its influence. Right. Effectively, it seems a lot more difficult. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, I mean, as I said, my, my initial uh, response for many years was to reject it, um, yeah. and sort of not only on on sort of grounds of of the, the um, his racism and everything else, but just purely musically, I found it sort of unappetizing. I thought there was something kind of alien and and invasive about it. And and then over time, I, I came around to a different view. And you know, I think I mean one thing that that I always sort of keep in mind or that I'm always aware of is that you know when I'm quote unquote listening to Wagner. You know, I'm listening to 
a modern orchestra and and modern singers or or to recording historical mm-hmm. uh, recording and you know from in the theater there's uh, a director uh, there are sort of ideas uh, in play about sort of how the work should be staged now so so it's never just Wagner uh, mm-hmm. it's always this kind of you know enormous crowd of people who are mediating the work through their own personalities and their, their own ideas um, and then when it gets to the point of you know, dealing with this this whole corpus, this whole literature of of Wagnerism. You know, now when I listen to the work, I'm affected by how, you know, the moments that make me think of of Willa Cather and and how she responded or how her characters responded to a particular uh, moment in the works, uh, or or how Virginia Woolf uh, interpreted a certain passage. Um, and so this this whole reception of Wagner kind of now now colors my own view. And so it does always seem to be changing. And I feel as though I never have a fixed response. And maybe eventually I'll come around to just detesting Wagner once again. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Um, You know, but but right now it does feel kind of just highly unstable in in a way that's kind of exciting because I just don't quite know, you know, how I'm going to feel next. And, And I said, bear in mind, actually, that, you know, as I got to know Wagner, one figure who had a huge effect on how I approached him was Thomas Mann, uh, who was kind of mm. the great Wagnerian in, in my mind. Uh, and he's present, you know, sort of all the way through the book. Um, and, you know, he had this amazing mixture of, of just passion, kind of almost sort of foolish adolescent passion, you know, for this music from, uh, from very early age. Uh, at the same time, this deep ambivalence and this constant kind of intellectual skepticism and sort of going back and, and, and reevaluating and sort of rethinking uh, uh, the work. And that response to, to, to Wagner excited me at a time when I just didn't really find the music itself that interesting. I was fascinated by how Thomas Mann responded to this work and and i and i thought sort of you know what he was uh finding in it was was something that i wanted to find as well um and so i kind of you know was was listening through his ears because i was just completely shattered and blown away by thomas mann's work and death of venice and and the magic mountain and dr faustus before i had those sort of really key deep experiences with Wagner. So he was kind of my, my guide uh, into this and, and sort of remains my, my guide uh, now. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a <laughs> uh, it's, it's, the book is kind of all written to some extent in the, in the spirit of, of Thomas Mann, which is of course impossible to execute, <laughs> but uh, it's a, it's a nice idea to, to have in mind. Um, um, so Alex, just as we wrap up, um, can you, talk a little bit about the research process and kind of the process of writing this book, which is so thoroughly researched. I mean, you, you track down so many different stories, like, you know, it would often surprise me in a, in a book that is already quite long in a single page, you would move through like, you know, several different anecdotes that I know as a researcher myself took you a considerable amount of time to track down and then collate and figure out how you'll narrate and that sort of thing. So can you talk a little bit about um, the process for writing the book? And then also as, you know, a longtime music critic for the New Yorker, um, if you see anyone in the kind of time since Wagner that approaches kind of his sort of sizable influence in the same way. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a a massive undertaking in terms of the the research. Um, It it was really sort of 
foolish uh, undertaking in some ways because, you know, I was assuming for myself a kind of unattainable level of expertise, you know, because this is not a book about music. You know, there's Mm -hmm. there's a lot of description of Wagner's music uh, in the book, but, you know, fundamentally it is about how he affected other art forms and and sort of the wider cultural arena. And, you know, I've written quite a bit about literature and and sort of, you know, uh, I studied literature in in college, so I felt relatively secure um, in that area um, uh, when it came to the visual arts and dance and and architecture and some other fields uh, I was on much uh, more unfamiliar ground and so uh, the, there was just more research required for those areas because I just didn't know the territory as well and then when it came to the writing it would just it would be much much slower you know because I would just sort of spend a whole afternoon you know trying to come up with a few plausible sounding sentences about you know a major architectural figure like Lewis Sullivan, you know, and I didn't have tricks to fall back on the way, you know, having been a music critic for so long, you know, I just sort of couldn't, can, can fall into a uh, routine and just feel sort of relatively secure um, as I go along. But that was actually what also made the whole project so exciting because there was this sort of massive education or kind of re-education in terms of uh, uh, reading or rereading this great swath of literature. And, you know, as I traveled, I was constantly going to museums and, and you know, looking at different artists and, and sort of the Belgian symbolist artists uh, uh, in, in Brussels uh, or, you know, in, in Barcelona and, and uh, uh, Catalonia, looking at uh, uh, Dali and Anthony Tapias. And, and, uh, and so I just felt... I felt so enriched by by this this process, um, and I guess I just sort of wanted to, to pass along that <laughs> enrichment, sort of sense of, of enrichment to the to the reader as well. Um, and there was a lot I had to leave out. You know, it's it's uh, as long as it is. I, I could have gone on much longer. <laughs> in fact, I had to cut a hundred thousand words from the manuscript. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it it you know it is ultimately about. This period um, in, in culture, this sort of this heyday of the of the fin de siècle and the, and, the, and the worship of art, with kind of Wagner, you know, seemingly at the center, but you know, so often uh, the the artists are using Wagner to you know advance their own uh, agenda. And yeah, I mean, the, the manuscript was, I mean, above all, it was it was a matter of organizing this this mass of information because I had documents on my computer where I've been making notes about all the books uh, that I had read. And, you know, I had my my general map and plan for each of the chapters, but there were a lot of cases where I was just moving things around and trying to find the right sequence. Uh, and yes, I'd sort of gather my anecdotes from far-flung places and try to kind of weave them together organically. Um, there was some archival research uh, as well and uh, a few kind of little scholarly uh discoveries uh, distributed through there. Um, in particular, I was quite proud of having uh, figured out who Professor Schindelmeiser was, uh, this this uh, shadowy figure who appears in Willa Cather's recollections of her childhood in uh, Red Cloud, Nebraska, and I, I, I figured out who he was. I was <laughs> quite proud of that, um, uh, to the astonishment of, you know, seven or eight uh, Willa Cather's scholars out there. Um, and... Uh, yeah, just it was uh, it was an irreplaceable kind of um, experience, and the question of you know I didn't know whether I was sort of stuffing too much in or or you know I, I you know I sometimes wonder whether I should just sort of strip the whole thing way down and just sort of concentrate on a few 
sort of more significant stories. But what I realized looking over the extant literature was that there was no one book where anyone had tried to put all of this together. There have been all these wonderful specialized studies of different aspects of Wagner's influence, whether on Joyce or, or Mallarmé or J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, but uh, yeah, no one had been foolish enough to try to put it all into one book. <laughs> um, and so that was what, what I set out to do. And, and you know, as I realized that that was my mission, you know, I, I, I decided this is going to be, you know, it, it will be an attempt at a comprehensive uh, uh, story and, and not uh, a selective one, but, but hopefully it will, you know, serve as, as a guide to further investigations and further explorations. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks so much. So we've been speaking with Alex Ross. His latest book is called Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. Thank you for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.